The dog is dead. You strangled it because you don't carry a gun anymore, and the thing was yipping like mad, acting like it should when a group of burglars breaks into a house. It's one of those little fluffy ones, a fresh white mop without the handle, and you almost didn't find it blending into the snow, with your eyesight going as it's been. Just a speck of black nose and a pink open mouth. It doesn't bother you. You scoot some snow with your toe off the porch to cover it. But it does bother you. The family just left the stupid thing out in the backyard. The kid in charge of prep should have seen the family's routine. They're all kids now, to you. It's not worth telling him off, but it does make you stand up straighter. A mistake at the beginning of a job means a mistake later. You'll be ready. Probably. A door to another huge house slams somewhere nearby, and yelling from inside muffles with it. You chuckle, in a grinchy sort of way, the distant domestic troubles of a suburban family on Christmas Eve. They might be grateful and stop arguing and make up if they knew they could be the ones getting robbed. Tonight's crew is confident and stupid. They make you watch the backyard because they don't think you can do much else. Arrogance mixed with youthful excitement, and you're mad that you're fine with it. You're mad that you think you're better and realize you've got the same arrogance mixed with youthful excitement, and that maybe they're right, and it's freezing out here. So you keep an ear out in the backyard, a useless endeavor, waiting for the next mistake. The kid driving the van said the family'd be gone for two hours, and the job should only take 20 minutes. Car engines rumble by on a neighboring street. You're not worried. Trust has never been part of the job. Or life. Look at you, living in absolutes. Judith hated absolutes. You promised yourself you wouldn't think about her tonight, how cliche that would be. And you bite your bottom lip, the trick she taught you to keep from getting angry. A crack by the back fence swirls up snow, and a shadow darts in your left periphery. A cat perches on the fence. It sits there, unwavering eye contact, like cats do when a group of burglars breaks into a house. It saw you kill the dog. It's been here the whole time, and it makes you feel like you're not doing your job. Bottom lip be damned. You tell the cat to scram. It doesn't. Maybe you are useless. They've got you standing out here in the cold, with a dead dog in the slush as the multicolored Christmas lights flicker in between the falling flakes. You've got this feeling of warmth mixed with the anger. The sentiments of the season get to you. Not the longing or the closeness. You don't have friends. Maybe it's the idea of them. You stuff your leather-gloved hands into your leather jacket pockets, feeling old. You are old. You didn't even bother to ask any of the guys' names. They switch around, get caught, move away, grow up. You stay. That's the excuse tonight. Nobody'd believe you, but that part of the job feels good. Consistency. Everybody needs a reason, and you like the work. It's never going to be one last job like in the movies. You hate cliches. Every kid these days wants it to be like the movies. More absolutes. There was a setup for a bank job, a big one, four days ago. After sitting in the van doing recon with a crew that called themselves the Creepers, you pulled out. First of all, no respectable crew gives themselves a name. You know who did the big Arlington bank job last year? No one does, because you don't form crews with names like in a middle school kickball game. Second, these guys were loud and annoying, hyenas sitting in a van, and they drove away from the site to get food every hour. A total joke. You hear laughter inside the house. It smells like burning. You look up to the chimney and see faint wisps of smoke. They lit the fireplace. This is too much for you. 
For no respect of the craft, for keeping an old man out in the cold, for wasting time. How long have you been standing out here, doing nothing? In any other job, you'd stay put. But there have been too many mistakes. You go inside, closing the door behind you, and turn to see a scene that's truly astounding in the worst possible way. These guys are not the creepers, but they're just as loud. A ruckus emerges from the kitchen, and two of the guys clink beer bottles together and walk into the living room where you stand, your snow-flecked boots dripping onto the hardwood floor. One of the kitchen crew raises his bottle to you, nods in mock respect, and says how he knew you might have been too old for the cold. He compares your leather coat to a walrus, and the other guy laughs. Wally the walrus, he says, even though that's not your name. You ignore it because you can't stop staring at the other three guys, grabbing presents from under the enormous tree and ripping them open. They toss the wrapping paper in bags in the fireplace, sparks and pops from the mixture, completing the spectacle of amateurs. You ask what they're doing. In the tone of an exasperated parent, and one of the idiots under the tree explains how Joe is back there in the bedroom working on the safe, and only one of them can do that, so they might as well see if there's anything worthwhile in these presents. He asks you to come help. There are an ungodly amount of presents. This seems like a foolish waste of energy, but this job is already a nightmare. You step around the guys tearing into the gifts and walk up to the fireplace. The crew member by the fireplace in charge of paper burning slaps you on the back, welcoming you inside. You grunt. They're all too happy for this. They don't have enough memories to make them careful. You know about being scared to death. The museum in Vancouver. The international airport security when you had that tiara hidden in the brick. That was stupid and terrifying. Fear creates courage. These kids are all faking it. Look at this, one of them shouts and holds the gift over his head like a kid in the back row who thinks he knows the right answer. He says it's an arena box, and it looks like snorkel goggles. One of those virtual headset things, real nice. You see the commercials everywhere, the fireplace guy says to you. You've never seen them, but grunt again in acknowledgement. Beside you on the mantelpiece sits an elaborate ship in a bottle. You look at the detail as close as you can and whistle in awe. It must have been tough building that, you think. The rest of the house looks so modern, so simple, which is why it catches your eye. Someone must have inherited it, or someone in the family's got a more refined taste. You look at the huge Christmas tree and the earthen rock wall above the fireplace, swooping into an archway overhead. What do these people do? There are so many presents. You ask if there are children that live here, and one of the guys with a beer says, Yep, you've never unwrapped this many presents. You try not to get caught in the cliché old man thoughts of when I was your age and being grateful, but you do. You hope it's not retroactive jealousy and that you're still immature. These guys wouldn't get it. You exhale and bite your bottom lip. The guy named Joe comes out from the hallway connected to the living room, saying how he needs a few guys to help embrace the wall while he does something to the safe, but he's cut off by a slam of the back door and the driver of the van, who's supposed to be in the van down the block, but of course, he's not. The driver stands in front of you and the rest of the crew, out of breath, and says two words you never want to hear in the middle of a job. They're here, he says. You flinch as two knocks thunder on the front door, and the doorbell chime swallows up the air in the room. All eyes shoot to the door and back to the driver, who has a sweatshirt with the words Big Money plastered on the front. 
You see Mr. Money mouth the word sorry, and you hear a murmur and shuffling of bodies from outside. The shades to the windows rest halfway down, and you think about who should have pulled them when you arrived. One of the beer guys reaches for a handgun in his belt loop, too much excitement in his eyes, and you wish you were closer to him so you could stop him, but any movement from you will set the whole thing off. Nobody does anything. And then a soft blanket of realization falls on the room. Who knocks on their own door? You look back to Mr. Big Money Driver, and he whispers, Carolers, and puts a finger to his lips as Joe motions him to come to the back room. They step gently and disappear to the bedroom where the safe rests. A soft chorus of voices comes through the heavy door. How long do carolers stick around when nobody comes out to listen? The guys under the tree start their unwrapping again, tentative pulling and ripping, a far cry from the reckless abandon of earlier. The scare seems to sober the bunch. Everyone's eyes flick now and then to the door, as if it might explode inward. A bang comes from the bedroom, followed by a whirring and you know they're taking stronger force with the safe. The carolers keep up the routine, unaware of the noise inside. It puts the crew at ease, even though you were all in the clutches of disaster moments ago. How quickly we forget, you think, and laugh at your own old man truisms. You walk away from the fireplace, taking a pause at the ornate coat rack by the back door. Another relic of the ship and a bottle owner, you think. You continue into the kitchen. It's massive. Garbage from a hot dog fast food joint litters the counter, from the beer drinkers, no doubt, and you consider taking it to burn in the fireplace. But the evidence of the crew's handiwork is so abundant, it wouldn't make a difference. The white and silver of the kitchen hurts your eyes. There's a table here, big, wooden, similar in style to the coat rack. Another old piece, out of place. This table gives you an idea. The job is taking too long. You shouldn't have time to roam the house. But maybe there's more to it than the safe, and these guys are too dense to look harder. You decide to do a little personal thieving on your own. Trust has never been a part of this, remember? You walk back through the living room, motioning your intentions to go to the bedroom down the hall. None of the guys give you a second glance. You go halfway down and take the stairwell upstairs, turning right, out of sight, and into the dark. You move down the hall, the carpet cushioning your footfalls. It's dark. Things are in order. Doors are closed. Signs that none of the other guys came up here. They went straight for the safe, as they should. You open a door to a bathroom and step over to the window above the toilet. You see an RV pull out of the driveway across the street, and the carolers down below, out front, shuffling off the stoop, do-gooders helping the RV reverse. Wait till they tell their friends where they were on Christmas Eve. They'll probably lie. Nobody wants to look stupid. You return to the hall, open another door. Children's room. Nobody hides valuables there. Too protective. What if the kid chokes on the pearls? You keep moving. The rest of the guys are probably opening the safe now, and you want to get back down before they get the idea to rummage elsewhere. You put your hand on the next door handle, but stop, gripping tight. Noise. Rustling inside. Faint. Light dances from under the door. A slight cough and you trust your ears. It's not from a TV speaker. Someone's inside. How could the crew not check upstairs? How did whoever's in here not hear the mess downstairs? And it hits you, and you fear the worst. Whoever's behind this door did hear everything. You've seen this before. You know how this plays out. 
It's a kid. The parents went out with the family for a Christmas Eve night, and the kid's probably sick or whining, and they don't want to ruin the event for the rest of the family because the sanctity of the memory is more important than the parenting. So they leave her home with the TV on, and eight adults clothed in black are tearing her house apart, and she's scared beyond belief. You exhale, still gripping the door handle. This is the last mistake tonight. You could leave her here, but you don't want her to come downstairs. You don't trust those guys. Maybe this is the last time you do this. You can't think about it right now, so you swing the door in and reach for your pistol out of habit. Not to hurt her, just to scare the little girl into saying nothing. You reach for air because of course you don't have a gun. And inside the room you see a large screen TV with a first person shooter video game, a couch pointed towards the TV, and a bald headed old man on the couch turning to face you. Sweet Saturday Christmas, the old man says as he turns around, and you wonder why you consider him old. He's your age. You start to say something, but he holds up his finger and looks down at the controller to pause the game. He lets out a little laugh, which turns into a cough. Oh, you're robbing us, he says. Thank God. Go ahead. And he squints at the TV, unpausing the game. You stay in the doorway. You start to say something again, but he cuts you off without looking. You see any presents down there from Marvin? What about just Grandpa? Maybe old guy we're all hoping dies soon? No? You don't have time to answer. Bah, I guess I have been a bastard recently, he says. Recently, meaning my whole life. And you hear a paradoxical tone of confidence and defeat. He keeps talking without any prompting, oblivious to your interest. He says they're nice for keeping him here, he can't complain, but this is no way to live, and he's just playing this silly game all the time and can't get past the level where you're breaking into the facility, and have you played it? And even if he did get out more, he's bad at meeting people, and he's never had any friends, and his wife died a few years back, and do you have a wife? And don't feel bad about taking any of the kids' presents, the parents can afford new ones, and his daughter should never have married that idiot, and did you see Percy on the way in? And that he's sorry for talking so much, but they just leave him up here, and he's thought about ending it all, and how the hell do you beat this part of the game? It takes you a second. You tell him your wife's name was Judith, and she died ten years ago. He says that's terrible, as he mashes buttons and fails to get through the facility. He says his wife died last year, and she was his only friend. He says he's always been bad at making friends. People just come and go. But not Percy, he says. Percy's a good little dog. And you watch this man fail the game again, and you crumble inside. He innocently asks why you don't have a gun. For moments like this, you think. Because I keep making mistakes, you think. Because life is an absolute, an all-or-nothing game. And because you've thought the same things he has about ending it all, and how the hell could anyone beat a part like this? You go to the door to leave, because certainly they've opened the safe by now. You tell him you have to go. A cliché and a lie. You close the door and walk down the hallway. You realize you never heard the video game, probably because the man in the room can't hear well anyways, and that's why he turned the volume off. The crew downstairs buzzes about. They yell back and forth across the house about how the alarm got triggered, and where's the old guy, the walrus? And they have to go, and he doesn't matter, and someone splashes water on the fireplace, and doors slam, and then... quiet. You stand in the hallway in the dark. You clench your leather-gloved fists and stuff them into your leather jacket pockets. Trust has never been a part of the job. You go to bite your bottom lip, 
But Judith never told you anything about how to stop this. You bite down anyways. You start to chuckle your grinchy laugh, because you see that you are a cliché. And the thing is, it helps to admit it. To own it. You are all clichés, from the owner of this house, to the couple fighting down the street, to the lonely old man behind the door, to this lonely old man in the hallway. You are all an unoriginal mess. You turn around and open the bedroom door, and walk up to the TV. He asks what you're doing. Cranking up the volume, you reply. That must be the trick. It turns out there's an alarm sound in the facility that tells you when to take cover, and you hear it and tell Marvin when to duck. He beats this part of the game and gives a little smirk. You swallow in your throat. You tell him you saw Percy. He understands and says he'll get over it, and says sit down, he needs help with the final boss. The sounds of alarms echo out, louder than the TV, and you realize they are sirens and see red and blue lights through the window. You sit down. Okay, Marvin, you say. Nice work on the ship in a bottle, by the way. Thanks, he says, and starts the last level with you. <laughs>